Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning we are continuing a, uh, a series that we've been in in the book of Acts. Uh, you know, we've, uh, we talked just now as we prayed about what the church is meant to do, the way that we're meant to be uh, channels of God's grace for one another, to walk alongside one another. And Acts uh, is really a book that we can look at to see more fully the design that God has for the church what the church's unique calling in the world is, our calling to, towards Jesus to live as his disciples, our calling towards one another to live as his family, and our calling to the world to live on this mission that he is sending us on. And so we're going to be reading this morning um, from Acts chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 32, through Acts chapter 5, verse 11. And so if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading begins in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for so much.' And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. 
You can be seated. One of the things uh, that becomes clear as you read the book of Acts, and one of the things that we've talked about as we journey through Acts together, is this idea uh, present in the New Testament that the church is itself a part of the gospel, right? The gospel means the good news, the announcement of what God has done and is doing in the world in Jesus. And the church is actually a part of the good news, that our existence in our community, our life together, our life among our neighbors, giving our lives away, is meant to be good news for us, for our neighbors, and for the world. And now that, if we're honest, of all the parts of the gospel that can be hard to believe, uh, that is oftentimes one of the hardest parts to believe. Sometimes it feels easier to believe that a dead man was raised bodily from the dead than it is to believe that the Christian church is broken, is wounded, is wounding, is at times hypocritical as it is, is actually meant to be good news in our community. We grow used to, our, uh, of course, our, we know our own weaknesses, our own sins that, that corrupt the goodness at times of our church and the church. We know the stories that grab headlines of sin and abuse and hypocrisy and cover-ups. We know all those things. Also, uh, quite often we just get so familiar with the church that it ceases to seem to us like a bit of grace, right? It ceases to surprise us uh, with its goodness, with its, the, the sheer grace of it. We get used to going, we get used to, to going home, we get used to, you know, in a place like Jacksonville in the south, we get used to driving by churches on every corner, and they just start to kind of blend in with the rest of the world. Uh, they start to blend in with the rest of our week, and we lose sight of the fact that it is meant to be a part of the good news itself, a manifestation of the goodness of the gospel. You know, speaking of coming to take something for granted, uh, I was uh, on, on Tuesday of this week, I was working, I was sitting at my desk, and I started getting text messages from my neighbors. And these text messages were pictures um, of a garbage truck heading down my street, right? And you know, not myself being a five-year-old boy. I've, it's, it's been a while since people were this excited about garbage trucks. Um, but they're going, hey, good news. There's a garbage truck here. They're on our street. They're coming for our yard trash. We, of course, uh, like much of the rest of the city, had about a month's worth of yard trash starting to take up space in our yard and on our street. And when they were coming down to clear off uh, the yard trash off of our street, our neighbors were spontaneously bursting into celebration. Right? Normally, this is something that uh, we take for granted, right? I don't remember the last time my neighbors were this excited about the yard trash coming. But uh, in the season where we've been without uh, some of these waste removal services, all of a sudden seeing them, we're reminded, oh, this is good news. These people have come to do our neighborhood good. They've come to make it cleaner and safer and more beautiful. Let's tell everybody we know that the yard trash people are here. Can you imagine uh, if the city were to respond in that way again towards the presence of the church? The Christians are here. They're here. They're here to do us good. They're here to make our neighborhoods more beautiful and safe and abundant and thriving. They're here, and this is good news. No, of course not. We can't imagine that. But that is the vision of what's going on here in this passage, that the church is good news. It's good news for those inside of it, right? It is a tangible expression of God's grace in our lives. And it's good news for the world, good news for the community. 
Now, this passage, of course, contains another story as well. This passage uh, shows us really two things, that God's design for the goodness, the genuine, authentic goodness of his church, and the corruption that often seeps into the church through hypocrisy, deceit. And so it takes both of these things seriously, both the created goodness and beauty of the church and God's redemptive design, and this cancer that often eats away at the church and has from its very founding, the cancer of hypocrisy, pretending to be one thing while being another. But first, let's look at this uh, staggering picture of the goodness and beauty of the church. In these first few verses, verse 32 through 36, we get this little snapshot Uh, It has a lot in common with some other descriptions in Acts, particularly the one that we read in Acts chapter 2, where the church is described in many of these same ways. But just listen to this. The full number of those who believe, that's all of the Christians that are gathered in the temples, in in the homes, all of them, were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they held everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all, such that there was not a needy person among them. I love this, that that phrase uh, in verse 33, great grace was upon them all, right? Really, that's the only way to describe uh, what's going on in that church, right? When you hear about a group of people, any group of people, Uh, that are of one heart and soul, trying to agree uh, on everything and live peacefully together. Uh, People who, uh, you can say that there are no needy people among them, not because they're not reaching and including needy people, but because as people become a part of this, this church family, as anybody has needs, those with means meet the needs right? That they're taking care of one another. They're agreeing with one another. They're, they're celebrating the story of the resurrection. The apostles are uh, telling the story of who Jesus is and what he's done. And great grace was upon them all, right? This is a group of people who have been absolutely uh, changed forever by their experience of God's grace, right? That to, come, uh, to become believers for them, to come into life in Christ, has meant that they have received grace, right? That they've met the God who is a God of generous grace, the God who loved the world so much that he gave as a gift, his only son to them, right? Having received forgiveness and mercy and acceptance with God, this is now a people who become givers themselves, right? Those who've received much become those who give much, And so grace starts to radiate out through this church from them to one another and then ultimately out uh, to the world, right? That this is the way grace is meant to work. Grace in Jesus is meant to so change our lives that we then kind of reverberate with its effects in every bit of life. It's like uh, if you ever take a, a rock and throw it in a still lake, right? It leaves these concentric circles of ripple effects out over the still water. It's like Jesus is the rock of God's grace that plunges into the still water of the world. And then the church is meant to be those ripple effects, right? Giving testimony to his grace, sharing his grace, spreading his grace. That great grace and mercy is on them all. And so they live 
with unity, with generosity, with commonality towards one another? Can you close your eyes and imagine, imagine what it would be like if that's the way our neighbors described the church, right? I mean, you think about the church gets a lot of bad press uh, these days, much of it quite earned, right? We all have our ideas about what goes on in church. Our neighbors have their ideas about what the church is, that it's a, 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 I don't know what they are. Some of them have come through people's personal experience with the church, having experienced hypocrisy having experienced uh, people who cling to power and lord it over others, maybe even having experienced abuse. And people tell those stories of what the church is like and what it's all about. Can you imagine if the stories that were gossiped about among our neighbors was that as a church of unity in a world of division? That's a church of generosity in a world of greed. That's a church of commonality where they share their life together in a world where everybody hoards and protects what's theirs and is worried mostly about themselves. I love the way that we, uh, Tim Keller describes the church um, as it's meant to be a, a counterculture for the common good, right? It's meant to be a counterculture, that, it's, that it is meant to live in a different way than the world around us. But it's not for our own sake, right? We're not, it's not just a, a group that isolates itself off on an island. We cultivate a life of generosity and love and grace and unity and commonality for the sake of the world, to show the world, to invite the world, to demonstrate that a different way of being human is possible in a broken world. I love this, uh, this quote from one of my favorite authors, a, a man named Wendell Berry, who's a poet and a farmer in Kentucky. He says this, he says, rats and roaches live by competition under the laws of supply and demand. It is the privilege of human beings to live by mercy and justice. I'll read it one more time. Rats and roaches live by competition under the laws of supply and demand. It's the privilege of human beings to live by mercy and justice. Now, of course, we often as human beings, right, we see it in the world all around us. We do live by competition right? We live as though there's just not enough for everybody to have what they need. So we hoard, we compete with one another, we look down on one another, we judge one another. We live our lives as though we're in co constant competition with those around us, with our neighbors, with other uh, countries in the world, right? We live our lives in this kind of uh, survival of the fittest competition. But what Barry's saying is that's not the way we're designed to live. We're privileged to be able to live by mercy and by justice. And the church is meant to embody that together. So that maybe it could be described in the way that, that Luke describes the church here, that there was not a needy person among them. You know, I love this. This is, this is a part of the way that the Old Testament people of God were meant to be. Deuteronomy 15 says that there shall be no poor among you uh, within uh, the Israelite community. Now, it also the scriptures also teach something else, right? Jesus also says the poor you'll always have among you right? That in a broken world, poverty is a fact of life. Poverty is a part of the hard reality of life in a broken world. But what's put together, what it's saying is that both of those are to be true at the same time as the church works out its mission, right? As we uh, grow, as we welcome new people in, as we welcome all sorts of people in, rich, poor, middle income, every, every stripe of humanity into the church, right? That we are called to uh, alleviate the poverty of our neighbors, right? Seeking to serve and do good wherever we can. 
and to eradicate the poverty of the membership of the church, such that among the members of the church, nobody sits around and looks around and goes, man, I don't have enough to eat. I don't have enough to wear. I don't have a place to live in. Right? That's the way that we're going to see in a couple of weeks is that when the diaconate, the deacons are established in the church. And that's a part of what they're given and meant to do to take care of the physical needs, the bodily needs of the members so that we can say in the midst of a world racked by poverty, we take care of one another and we welcome folks in. And when folks come in, there's enough, for, there's enough to go around. There's enough to look out for everyone. And so we get this scene of what this looked like in practice is a man named Joseph, verse 36. Uh, Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite and a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the introduction of a person who's going to become a, a key figure in the book of Acts and a, a missionary partner of Paul at different moments in his life a leader in the early church. And here we get the story of his conversion, right? That he was a member, a, a resident of Cyprus, uh, evidently was a landowner, likely a farmer there in Cyprus. And having come to faith in Jesus, having become a disciple of Jesus, having been knit together in this new church family in Jerusalem, he sells off some of his lands, not, uh, we don't think he sells off everything that he owned in Cyprus, but he sold off a part of it and brought it and laid it at the disciples' feet to help take care of some who didn't have enough. You know, I love the way that this story is put together because I think it points to something that's true, is that if we want a culture of goodness in a church, right, that's what we say we want. We, you know, if you read our church mission statement, we exist to see and to display the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus in our city. I know you have it memorized. You say it every night before you go to bed. Um, but if we want to display the goodness of Jesus, if we want to be a culture that, that represents the genuine goodness of Jesus, that it takes members, it takes people in the community who are following Jesus and being shaped by his goodness. I think this, this, this chapter throws something beautiful that there's a, there's a, in a goodness culture, it shapes people towards lives of goodness that then contribute to the culture right? It's a self-perpetuating cycle, right? We're a community where great grace lives, where grace rests on all of us, shapes people who follow Jesus, who then bring more grace into the membership of the church and into the organization of the church, right? The culture of the organizations that we're a part of have a power to shape us, don't they? Right? If you, it's what, we, it's what we're always telling our kids, right? You know, if you want to be, you know, it matters who you hang out with. Right? You want to hang out with that group of people that's going to shape you to be more like you. The people you hang out with are going to shape you. And so you want them shaping you in a positive direction, not shaping you uh, in, a, in a way that leads uh, to brokenness. David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, uh, describes something of this in his book, The Second Mountain. He says this, he says, never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform who you are. When you choose to work at a certain company, you are turning yourself into the sort of person who works in that company. Moreover, living life in a pragmatic, utilitarian manner turns you into a utilitarian pragmatist. Right? Here he's saying, he's like, look, the, 
you, at first, you're the type of person who chooses to work in a certain company. But then over time, you become the sort of person who works in that company, right? And we've probably all, all felt that at some point, whether it was in, in job and in school and community or friendships. You start off as somebody who's just a part of something, but then in the end, you end up as the type of person who would be a part of that thing, right? I think we saw a lot of this, you know, nationally, we, if you've paid any attention to the, uh, uh, all these tech people that come before the Senate these days, right? The, the people who work at Facebook talking about how they make decisions, Right, and I'm sure none of them got into the business to say, you know what we're about is fanning the flames of anger and fear in our populace so that people click on our ads more. I'm sure that wasn't anybody's intention when they got into it, but over time in an environment, you become the kind of person who cares most about the bottom line, right? And so culture shapes people who then shape culture. This is one of the reasons why genuine belonging in a church family matters. Right, why genuine uh, participation in the membership life of a church matters, right? Because over time, uh, you become like the culture of the people that you orient your life around. And if you if you make room in your life for people who are together seeking to follow Jesus, who are taking the call to discipleship seriously, who are receiving God's grace freely and generously, and who are sharing it, it starts to have a formative power in your life that you'll never actually get just by showing up, worshiping, and then leaving, right? And a power that you'll never get by going to one church one week and another church another week and hopping around until you find one that fits just right. At some point, connection is, is what it takes. Being a part of the family, being known, being loved, being uh, seen for who you are, seen enough that you can be challenged to live in the light, uh, seen enough that you can be supported and loved and cared for, and you see that here, this, this man, Joseph, who sells the field, the apostles see him and they know him enough that they actually change his name. They see God's grace in his life and they say, you know what we're going to start calling you? We're going to start calling you son of encouragement. Now, I've gotten a lot of nicknames in my life, most of them uh, in a locker room, um, right? And most of them were not uh, by my fellow friends who saw something good in me and decided to call out that name, right? Most of us get nicknames because of something some of our friends are making fun of us about, right? Especially if you've ever been a middle school boy, that's where your nicknames came, right? Um, right? That, that, that we get named in all sorts of ways by our families, by our peers, by our coworkers. Most of those names in this world, in this broken world, are painful names, they might be slurs. They might be uh, things that are that are said and fun, but they stop to feel, they stop feeling fun after a certain point. But in the church, something different happens here. They see God's grace in Barnabas's life, and they recognize it, and they call it out, and they celebrate it, and they change his name. You know, I think oftentimes we think about the ways that we support one another in the church. We think about the ways that we help one another to grow in Christ. And normally, I think the focus is on helping one another fight against sin, right? I remember that's the way that, and that's necessary. I remember uh, one of the first things as a new Christian that I was told was that I need accountability in my life, right? You need people who can know about you. Uh, you need people who you can be honest with, people who can challenge you, people who can, uh, when they see you sinning, can say, stop it. 
right? And that, that's a part of what we need. We need people in our lives that are going to help us die towards sin. But the Christian life isn't just about not sinning, right? It's not just about dying to something. It's also about coming alive, right? Not only is there a part of us that's dying, that old self, that, that broken self, that sinful self, there's also a part of us that's coming alive, breathed into new life by the Holy Spirit. We need people in our lives not only to challenge us when we sin, right, but people to call out goodness when they see it in us. People to say when they see grace in our lives, I see what God's doing in your life and it's beautiful. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Keep going in that direction. People who name us according to the, the way that God's grace works in our lives. Most of us are, <laughs> I can think of a few times in my life that my life was literally changed by somebody seeing something good in me and giving it a name and saying, Dave, do that. <laughs> Dave, you're good at that. Dave, I see something wonderful in that. I'll never forget. I mean, the, the words of my dad stick with me for the rest of my life. First time my dad ever heard me preach. My dad was an accountant. And he, I don't know that he necessarily understood the whole preaching thing. Um, didn't understand that, you know, just this as a career path. Um, and so, you know, he had deep concerns about that. And I remember the first time he came and heard me preach, he was in Orlando, and then he was driving back to Jacksonville. And he picked up the phone, he called me. My dad was a man of few words. And he picked up the phone, he called me. He said, Dave, you're doing what you're supposed to do with your life. This is what you're meant to be doing. You've got God's grace is in your life in this way, and you ought to keep doing it. Even if it doesn't end, you know, with a, you know, great job, huge house. You might, you might end up under a tent, right? But he saw something beautiful and he called it out. And literally, those words have stuck with me for the rest of my life. It didn't have to be a dad. I've, I've, had, uh, I've had other pastor friends. I've, had, I've been in small groups where people spoke something good. I remember Haley and I in the early days of our marriage in a small group where people just said, you know what, y'all have a really good way of, of communicating with each other. I love the way that y'all are together. And you go, man, as harsh as we often are with each other and as, as much as the rest of the world around us tells us how tough marriage is, how awful it is, to see people call out something good and beautiful, it has an incredible power in our lives. And so let's, yes, let's hold one another accountable, right? The sin, is, as Jesus said, does crouch at the door and desires to consume us. We need to take it seriously. But let's also celebrate God's grace in our lives and we can see it and call it out and celebrate it. So Barnabas is celebrated for his grace, for this grace in his life. Now here's the tricky part. Being seen and celebrated, being seen and noticed, seen and applauded, feels so, so good that most of us will do almost anything to get a little bit of it. And that's what happens with Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe they, maybe they were there when Barnabas did his field, sold it and brought it to the apostles' feet. And they, they heard him change his name. They saw the kudos and celebration that he got. And they said, man, I could use some of that. Right? I could use people celebrating me. I could use people noticing me. I could use a little bit of applause. And so right here in the midst of this beautiful story of the celebration of grace, we see the church's most persistent cancer start to grow. The cancer of deceit or of hypocrisy, of pretending to be something when in reality you're something else. That's really what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. Their sin, 
the what they get so wrong it's not their greed right it's not that they didn't bring all of the money and give it to the apostles right in fact peter says look wasn't the field yours before it's before you sold it and then once you sold it the proceeds were yours right nobody told you you had to give all of it right you could have kept what you wanted and brought what else and, and brought what you could right it, what matters isn't that you held some back it's that you tried to tell us that you didn't hold anything back right it's that you kept a part of this for yourself while still wanting everybody to think that you were the kind of people who would give everything that you had right that it's the pretending it's the deceit uh that was the problem and we see that it was uh, not a little problem but a really, really big problem. You know, we see here uh, the way, the reason that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount warns so strongly against public acts of righteousness, right? What does he say in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? When you do your giving, don't give in public so that everybody sees it. When you, uh, when you do your fasting, don't, put, uh, uh, don't cover yourself in sackcloth and ashes so your neighbors see you and go, oh, what a wonderful display of self-restraint. When you pray, don't do it out loud on the city streets with lots of words, but go into your closet by yourself and pray. The reason Jesus took that so seriously in the Sermon on the Mount is because he knows how our hearts work, right? He knows that there's a thin line between doing something good in public and getting recognized for it, and then going to where now you're only doing good things because they're in public and you get reconciled for it, or they get recognized for it, to getting to a place where your entire spirituality, your righteousness, your goodness is really a performance art, right? That it's really something that you, you've, you've gotten to a place where you care more about looking good than being good. Right? You care more about how you're perceived than what's really going on in your character. And I think we've all been there, right? I know I've been there. I've been at, I think I, I drift towards being a person who would rather be seen to be good because you know what? Actually being good just takes a whole lot of work, right? Actually being a generous person is really, really hard. But appearing to be a generous person, well, that, I can manage that, right? Being a kind person is really hard. But being seen as kind, saying nice things, you know, being nice when the boss walks by, that I can maybe do for a little bit. But public goodness has a way of eroding the heart. And I think that's actually maybe, uh, I don't know if there's ever been a generation more tempted towards public displays of goodness, right? I mean, think about what social media basically is, right? The way we use it, it, it is life as performance, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, uh, proving your goodness to the world through your opinions, proving your goodness to the world by uh, the, the pictures that you put up there, the pictures of the, of the image that you cultivate, the stories that you share, the life that you do. Like, it, it tempts us into this public performance of life where you start to really believe that what matters is how we're perceived more than who we actually are. It shifts the central question of our life. You know, the, the central question when a Christian wakes up in the morning as we think about what's going on in our lives ought to be, who am I and who am I becoming? Right? We're all becoming something. We're all on, on the way to becoming either more like who Jesus has called us to be, who he's already announced us to be, what, what it would mean to be his follower, or we're on a drift to becoming something else. 
And the temptation is to shift the question from who am I becoming to how am I being perceived, right? Not who am I actually, but who do people think that I am? And that was Ananias and Sapphira's sin. They wanted to be seen as good and generous people uh, more than they wanted to actually be good and generous people. And so God judges this sin quite harshly. Uh, First, Ananias drops dead, is carried out. Then three hours later, Sapphira comes in, picks up the lie again, uh, and she herself is carried out. What's going on in this story? You may notice that God doesn't uh, typically go around killing people. Uh, He doesn't go around killing people uh, again in the New Testament. Uh, he doesn't go around killing people at church, right? You don't have to worry that if you, uh, you know, don't quite tithe that, you know, we're going to carry you out dead, right? This is clearly, some, God is sending a message in this moment, right? It's not that every time somebody lies, they're going to get struck dead, right? This is, his, this is him trying to cut out the cancer of deceit and hypocrisy out of the church in this foundational moment in the church's life. A lot of commentators draw a line between this story and another story in Joshua chapter 7. When the Israelites are taking, it's the story of the conquest, right? When Israel's going into the land of Canaan, they're taking it, and God tells them at one point, uh, don't keep any treasure for yourself, destroy everything and devote it to me. And this one guy, Achan, holds back uh, some of the wealth. He He doesn't do what God asked him to do, and God kills him. In that moment, like this moment, is a foundational moment. This is the the, the Old Testament church at the beginning of it taking the promised land, at the beginning of its mission. And God's saying, look, if you're going to do this mission, if you're going to be my people and take this land, you can't have this rot at the center. We can't allow it to fester. And then here again in Acts, at the beginning, it's again now the New Testament church setting out on our mission. And God's saying, look, if you're going to do my mission, if you're going to be my people, you can't allow hypocrisy to take root and to grow. It can't be allowed to fester because it is a cancer that strikes at the very heart of the church's life. The reason hypocrisy strikes uh, as a cancer at 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 the very heart of the church is because it strikes at the core of the gospel, right? You can't be a people that whose central message is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, right? What does Paul say to Timothy? God came to save sinners of whom I am the very worst. You can't have a message that, it, that its very core is you are a sinner saved by grace. That's the, that is the magic, that is the energizing power at the heart of the church, the announcement of the forgiveness of sin. And that can't coexist, right? I'm the worst of sinners, can't coexist with I'm going to come to church and pretend not to be a sinner, right? It, it can't exist to say I'm a sinner saved by grace alone within I'm going to come into the church and pretend that I'm the kind of person that really doesn't need that much forgiving because I'm so good and so righteous and so wonderful, right? Hypocrisy, pretending to be better than you are, gets at the heart of what makes the church the church because it pretends to be people who no longer need the grace of Jesus. It pretends to be people who no longer need forgiveness. It breeds duplicity, performance, Charles Spurgeon, I'm pulling this from memory, I'm 99% sure it was Spurgeon. If it wasn't, you can tell me later, uh, said that God never meant for the church to be a parade of masks, 
right? That God never meant uh, for the church to be a parade where we all put on our masks and come to church and pretend to be better than we are, right? He put, it, he put the church together into one another's lives as a group of forgiven sinners who could tell the truth about themselves, who could tell the truth about their need of Jesus, who could support one another and hold one another up. If we want to be a church uh, that lives out our calling with goodness and integrity, right, that, that is in public who we are in private, well, it takes two things. It take, there, there's two ways to have integrity, right? The, you know, I do think that if you listen to, the, to our neighbors, hypocrisy is probably the number one charge that people have, their number one reason for wanting nothing to do with the church, right? One way to get rid of the charge of hypocrisy is to become perfect, right? I mean, the one way to no longer be hypocrites is to no longer sin. So that's what, if you think that, if, if that way sounds good to you, if you want to just take the, I'm going to become perfect route, knock yourself out. I know that I need a different way, right? If the only two options in my life are hypocrisy or perfection, I'm doomed. But there is another way, right? The other way is honesty, right? It's transparency. It's what our brother Jonathan read from 1 John in the, in the prayer of confession, to come into the light, right? To not to be the kind of people who pretend that we have no sin, but people who tell the truth about ourselves, people who are aware of the fact that we're sinners, people who the norm when you show up in a growth group or at church is that you're not among a group of people that have it all together, but that you're a group of sinners trying to treasure God's grace and to follow Jesus as his disciples. A community trying to tell the truth about our own lives, trying to call out the goodness of one another so that we can together knit together a church of real and genuine goodness. Let's be a church of honest strugglers, right? I mean, that's, we don't get to be a church of perfect people, right? That's not, that's not on the menu. But let's be a church of honest strugglers. People who do struggle because we are aspiring to growth, right? This isn't an excuse to just say, oh, you know what? I'm just a struggler. I'm just an imperfect sinner. I'm just always going to be this way but to really to take the call of discipleship seriously, to want to reflect the character of Jesus and to struggle and repent against the sin that's always there in our lives. I'm not fit to be a pastor of a church of perfect people, but give me a church of honest strugglers, chasing after Jesus, treasuring his grace, celebrating his goodness, and we can go far celebrating his life in our community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to reflect your goodness in our world. Our world is so full of bad news. We want to be a church that tells your good news and that not only tells it, but embodies it. A church that takes sin seriously because we know the duplicity of our own hearts. We know how quickly we drift uh, towards faith as performance. Lord Jesus, help us uh, to come into the light to be the kind of people in whom genuine sanctified goodness can take root. A people who don't pretend to be other than we are, but a people who bring to you our real selves, receiving your mercy. Lord, we know ourselves to be sinners and we know yourself to be full of grace. And so Lord, help us to come together to treasure your grace every moment, every week, every year. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.